patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 37 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Talosky as always and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. A couple of quick announcements for you before we get started for today's solo episode. First is that uh, I'm very, very thankful for all those who have submitted questions for the upcoming Q&A episode which will be coming out on May 17th. 2021. So two weeks from this episode's date, we will have our third Q&A. I've got a lot of great questions. If you didn't get a chance to submit a question, don't worry about it. We will have more opportunities later on this year and in subsequent years. Secondly, Dan Freeborn of the Freeborn and Liberty podcast had me on for his uh, episode 11 on April 27th, 2021, so that was about six days from uh, today's episode, and we had a really wonderful conversation, and I am so grateful to have have had the opportunity to get onto the show, um, talk about friends and fellow citizens, but also some other subjects about uh, free speech on college campuses um, and the importance of this issue. This is obviously an issue that we're still continuing to discuss and something that is going to have to get a lot more momentum as we try to figure out ways to uh, protect more free speech, not restrict it. So make sure to check into that. Uh, I've got that on the press tab of our website, shermantylosky.com. So please check that out. Uh, I really, again, really appreciate Dan for having me on this show. It's a great show. Make sure you subscribe to Freeborn and Liberty. Lots of great content, lots of great guests on Dan's show. And now let's get into today's episode. So the, a little bit of context for you today. Here, you know, and this, this show is based in Washington, D.C., and uh, there's there's a number of landmarks, a number of places that uh, we all think about. We think about the you know, Lincoln Memorial, the U.S. Capitol, the White House, uh, perhaps the Supreme Court Building, Library of Congress. Uh, but there's one, one small park that that for I frequent a lot, um, and certainly this is something that uh, that some some tours might also get a chance to walk around a bit because uh, it's between the Capitol Hill, between the U.S. Capitol and the Supreme Court, all that, that those buildings, and Eastern Market, which is a very very popular destination, obviously as the name suggests, for uh, farmers market, uh, all kinds of restaurants and shops and so forth, and. I, every single, almost every single day, when I walk in that kind of area at this time, um, and even in years before, there's a square called Seward Square. Now, when people walk through it, you know it it doesn't seem like a very prominent little park area. Um, it's it's actually there's kind of a transversal, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue runs diagonally through one direction. Uh, there is, I believe, North Carolina Avenue that runs the other direction. And, and I just wanted to reflect a little bit about some of the, these names. You know, you know, I'm always curious about 
what these squares or these places are named after. And Seward Square is named after William Seward, who was a former Secretary of State uh, for uh, the uh, Lincoln administration all the way back in the 1860s and also served in the Johnson administration as well. And this just got me thinking about William Seward. So I did some research about this this man, a man who, who doesn't get a lot of name recognition, clearly. Um, but the more I read about William Seward, the more I am impressed with the things that he was able to get done. And, and I th- truly believe that he was not only a very skilled and shrewd politician and lawmaker, but a great patriot as well. And, and I just want to... I just want to acknowledge that. Not a perfect man by any means, but certainly in many ways a man ahead of his time. So a little bit about Seward. So Seward is from New York. Uh, he grew up in, I believe it was a small town in New York. Uh, he practiced law in a place called Auburn, New York. Um, very, very, very skilled guy. Uh, knew, uh, obviously, was very much interested in the law, but he really wanted to be very upfront on issues that were essentially very, very new at the time. Uh, one of those issues was on immigration. When Seward became governor of New York, um, he didn't have the easiest time. Uh, he wanted to really push this idea that immigration for America was good. There has to be obviously some consideration as to you know, how you're able to balance between, you know, nativists, you know, the people who are already in the States and those coming in, but you really want to advocate for that conversation and to have policies that uh, could really give America a, a very diverse population, um, a population not just of people of different ethnicities, but of different skills and different uh, backgrounds and different uh, cultural backgrounds too that would add to the fabric of the nation. He faced a lot of opposition, and it was a very, very difficult time because even as he was a Whig, you know, the Whigs were known for, as, for their anti-slavery stance, uh, among other stances, but he still faced opposition uh, from a number of people on different, in different parties. But Seward pressed on, and he went, he went very, quite far, I, I would say, you know, as, even as just the governor of a state. We went very, very far as to try to get the conversation going, get and also to pass policies uh, that would bring more immigrants to New York, um, and especially in New York City. Uh, New York City was very different at the time, and there was a, a certain a huge Protestant bent when it comes to the running of public schools, and um, there was there were people arguing that. Uh, because of you know, kind of the religious background and and whatnot of the United States and what so forth, that immigrants weren't welcome, and he really pushed against that. I think mean, that was really admirable, especially especially given how tough New York politics is, especially how difficult it is to navigate through all that opposition. Seward pressed on as with also his abolitionist stance. He was a staunch abolitionist, and not one who was particularly popular clearly as you as many of you might know you know within the anti-slavery movement there were a number of factions one particular faction was called the radical republicans and these 
these people, as probably the name suggests, were the folks who were, were basically think already not just abolition of slavery, giving equal rights to all, um, finding ways to get you know African Americans uh, to back in, in, into society as equal uh, with equal people with equal rights. Um, Seward, I believe, tended did tend to, a lot towards that, but I do think here's the difference here, and this is something that that is a bit of a lesson to all of us, which is it's one thing to have a passion and a staunch stance for something like Seward did. He was a staunch abolitionist, but he also knew that he couldn't burn bridges. And this is really, really important. Seward was able to work with people on all all sides of the aisle, people within his party, even those who were more nativist, those who were uh, perhaps a bit more moderate on the slavery issue. He obviously got along well with people who agree with him on on this uh, issue of abolitionism. But he also maintained relations with uh, with conf- uh, with Southerners, with uh, especially with uh, with Southern members of Congress. Seward was an, a senator from New York. He was elected in 18, 1849 uh, to eighteen sixty one, and he obviously truly believed in this idea of deliberation. That despite big big differences, you had to stand your ground. But you also had to make sure you didn't burn bridges because he truly also believed that the union was central. I I find it very extraordinary because when you have someone like Seward who did everything he could to push to to advocate for abolitionism, he was part of a number of schemes, a number of ideas to, to expand idea of abolition. He got a lot of popularity in the North, but we also realized that it politically cost him. Even though he was governor of New York, faced all those obstacles, I and mean, he was a senator for New York, he ran for the Republican nomination in 1860. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that if it wasn't for his staunch stance, um, uh, if it wasn't for his staunch stance on a slave on anti-slavery sentiment, Lincoln uh, would have uh, would obviously be the the clear winner, and he was. Had Seward been more moderate, we probably could be maybe could, could have seen instead of a President Lincoln at President William Seward. That was how popular he was, but he it certainly did cost him votes. Um, the nativists in his party uh, in his wing. Uh, were very, very, very skeptical of Seward, um, and they sided more with the Lincoln folks and some others who uh, preferred a more moderate approach. But here's the thing. Seward knew that he probably wasn't going to have a path to the presidency, but he still believed in the union. He still believed in a national unity, and that's why he decided to campaign for Lincoln. I can't tell you how many there how many people in his group of supporters who probably really very vehemently disagree with them. They probably thought that Lincoln was going to be a sellout, and and uh, probably feared that Seward was going in that direction. But he did. He campaigned for Lincoln. He knew that Stephen Douglas, who was the Democrat, uh, the uh, essentially well a Democrat nominee. The other the other one was 
uh, John Breckenridge, uh, uh, also a Democrat. But you knew that Douglas, the Illinois guy, was going to get a lot of support in Illinois. But he truly believed he wanted to make sure that Douglas didn't win those states. He wanted to make sure that Lincoln was able to get that election victory and not have it be sent to the House, which would have been which would have been a bloodfest anyway. And that's what happened. Lincoln was elected. Uh, I'll be with less than 40% of the popular vote. But I, I truly believe that without Seward so campaigning, without his conviction to keep the United States together, we might, we might be seeing something very, very different. Now, moving on to really what happened after the secession of the southern states, as you know, with South Carolina and then Oh, and then after a bunch of other states seceded from the Union, he, Seward, Seward truly felt like this was, th- this was the inflection point in the United States. And as Secretary of State, you know, his job was it became even more challenging. In recent years, in Congress and the White House and really in the national debate, a lot of people have been talking about foreign interference. And we've spoken about foreign interference before and about the Washington administration. Suda was wholeheartedly dedicated to stopping foreign interference in the Civil War, especially stopping any foreign help for the Confederacy. And there were two countries that were incredibly critical, the United Kingdom and France. This was especially difficult because he uh, he knew that there were so many mon- monetary interests that the British could have had. In fact, the British government was considering recognizing the Confederacy. Imagine how big of a blow that was when one major country recognizes the Confederacy as a legitimate country. It, it would be it would have been a huge catastrophe. Not to men- not just the diplomatic side of things. But imagine the, how big of a hit in morale that would have hit the Union. France was also a bit concerned as well. Now, for the UK, Seward was very successful with all these negotiations, all of the work that he put, he and his uh, team put together. They were able to not only stop the British from recognizing the Confederacy, he also managed to work with the British to ensure that new ships would not be supplied to the Confederacy. that worked with uh, the British government uh, to be able to detect any ships that were helping you know, slave owners or helping, any, uh, helping the South in any way and able to stop them. This was a really, really big success and, and a huge, huge deal. And finally, the British government officially recognized that they would not recognize the Confederacy. Big victory number one for Mr. Seward. But the other challenge was France. France, under the pretext of protecting their own nationals because of a dispute uh, with Mexico, which clearly was not the case, uh, wanted to intervene in Mexico. And there there were a number of other countries involved. Uh, Spain was involved. I believe the UK was involved to some degree uh, in terms of protecting their nationals from a, a very, very contentious Mexico. Mexico, had, uh, to say that it had a rough uh, rough history, especially with 
all the different administrations, all the presidents that were coming in and out uh, is an understatement. How crazy would that was that place? And France basically tried to intervene, tried to put someone in there, uh, Maximilian the first, um, into power in Mexico. And I believe the plan for France, if if it hadn't been for Seward, was to put in, put in a guy who is very pro France. Essentially, and essentially, let the French just come in and completely take over Mexico. It could have been done. Mexico was in such disarray. There was there was almost no opposition um, against the French. Seward recognized this, and he recognized that it wasn't just France infiltrating Mexico, imposing another threat to the United States, but also it was a threat to the Civil War cause. The Confederacy, as you could probably imagine, would want to exploit any opportunity for the Union to lose legitimacy, to, to lose any kind of control, any kind of diplomatic relations. And they wanted and the Confederacy wanted to see that the unit the unit would collapse. So Seward with a very Staunch stance with his diplomatic power, along with obviously the support of the rest of Lincoln's cabinet, was able to, after after years of negotiations, of talks, of red lines and so forth, finally the French pulled out of Mexico. But uh, it was... The crazy thing, Maximilian first actually uh, actually eventually got executed. That, that's that's how crazy it was. But anyway, that's a that's a whole other whole other episode. Uh, very very contentious at that time. But again, going back to kind of my previous point, which was even though this was this seemed like a very very minor thing uh, with so much attention on the battles in the Civil War, but. Seward almost single-handedly was able to stop two major powers from giving the Confederacy any kind of legitimacy or any kind of support. Really, really extraordinary successes. And it really defined who he was. Domestically, Seward was someone, again, that man who had all those relationships with even Confederate politicians, basically people who vowed um, to fight against the country, right? He still was able to engage in talks. There's something called the Hampton Roads Conference, which was an attempt for the Lincoln administration and Confederate officials to try to make an agreement, to make a peace agreement together. And while it, it did not come out basically out of any success, Seward put out a message that I think uh, I I really thought this was so reflective of his of his character. He sent a bottle of champagne or bucket of champagne to the Confederate envoy's ship, and it's reported that he shouted from his ship, saying, "Keep the champagne, but return the Negro." In other words, keep the champagne. But bring back the people who are part of this country who deserve equal rights to be as as American citizens should be treated equally, just like everybody else. You know, very very simple message, 
but one that was very, very blunt. Something that I think, again, really defined who he was as a, as a statesman. Now, it's true that in the Johnson administration, I would give more criticism against him, although in, in many ways, though, it was a very, very difficult situation. Andrew Johnson, who I think basically everyone knows is by far one of the worst presidents we've ever had, um, was involved in the impeachment trial. Uh, he was obviously impeached by the House um, for basically trying to kick out a guy named Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, uh, without basically doing it illegally and it could have it basically was a smear campaign. It would have been a much bigger smear campaign against Edward Stanton had it had it, had he kept going. But uh, Seward stuck to his guns. You know he had he had a job. He he had to remain Secretary of State. He had to do what he had to do um, to keep the country together, but also to do his job to maintain foreign relations. Because even when the United States is broiled in a domestic battle like what we what we've seen. With the Civil War, no question that Seward was thinking well ahead of his time. What does the United States look like beyond 1865, beyond the end of the Civil War? That's what he was, I believe, what he was focused on. And to close, you know, looking back on the life of a man like William Seward, and he's not a man who everyone is going to recognize clearly. I mean, I use the example of how you know, people know, walk through the square, but I don't think a lot of people maybe even know what it, what the name is. But William Seward, I think, is an example of someone who was ahead of his time, but was not afraid to make his stance, but also to be able to build relationships. Because I believe it's the relationships he had, not just with his friends, but with people who vehemently disagree with him. It's the relationships and his ability to foster peace, to bring some kind of civility, some kind of diplomacy within the uh, political culture of the United States. That was his main stance. And one, one other, one other success he had was the Alaska Purchase. You know, Russia obviously needed a lot of money. They've they had they were running out of money after the Crimean War. Um, he went in. He knew. He understood both sides. He understood the particular interests, and he was able to negotiate with seven million dollars at that time for Alaska. There were critics who literally called him called this Alaska Purchase. Seward's icebox because they felt like, why, why is this guy buying a huge piece of land where there's basically no one living there? But he, he didn't care about that. He believed that Alaska geopolitically could be something, something not just of economic benefit to the United States, but uh, perhaps something that, uh, that could matter very, very, very much in, a, in the next several decades. Who knows, right, at that time? And it turns out, if you fast forward, fast forward over 150 years, look at the economy of Alaska. It's dependent and its energy resources. How how much of a factor that that is nowadays? So, to conclude, William Seward is someone who I I, I found a lot of interest in, um, and I hope that you share that too. He was a man who was not always the most popular man. There's no question that his stance, his stances 
people probably thought, ah, oh, come on, no way, no way anyone's gonna think like think like him. Why why is he why is he risking all his political capital on something like abolition? So that's what people thought at the time. Now people probably told him like say Mr. Seward, you're never gonna be president if you have these stances. But I don't think he cared. He was very, very articulate. He was very um very deliberate, one who cared about relationships, about keeping this country together more than anything. And I believe that's that's why he deserves a, a positive reputation. I hope that Mr. Seward will be maybe highlighted a bit more in his, the history textbooks. Uh, someone who, uh, again, was not perfect, he understood, understandably had some criticism, especially during his time during the Johnson administration, the fact that he had to kind of defend the president since he was Secretary of State under, <laughs> under President Johnson. Uh, but I wanted to share that with you today because this podcast is all about sharing about the people who maybe don't get as much attention, but maybe who should. Maybe just someone else who had some other characteristics that I could add to the mix of the, the countless people who have served in Washington, D.C. And uh, I believe Mr. Uh, Secretary William Seward truly is a hero of mine, and I hope that you will you will look maybe look more into who he is as an individual, as a lawmaker, but as a patriot as well. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. I really, really appreciate all of your support. Again, make sure to check out this Q&A that will be coming out on May 17th, 2021. Have a great rest of your day, rest of your week, and I'll see you at the next episode.